take your time, get your entitlements, uh, your planning in place. So the minute you close, if you decided to sell the project the next day, you could sell it the very next day and make a profit. Best ever listeners, before we get into today's episode, I want to ask you, do you have a strategy right now where you are getting leads that come into your inbox while you're sleeping? Do you have a strategy where you are optimized with both Google AdWords and SEO, search engine optimization? If not, then guess what? Today's your lucky day. We've got a free strategy session just for you, and it's with Dan Barrett. If you recognize his name, he was a guest on episode 565, and he is the only certified Google partner agency that works exclusively with real estate investors. Go to adwordsnerds.com forward slash strategy and get a free strategy session to learn with him how to implement an online strategy for your market in both SEO and Google AdWords. Go to adwordsnerds.com forward slash strategy. Best ever listeners, welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate podcast. We've spoken to Barbara Corcoran from Shark Tank, Robert Kiyosaki, the author Rich Dad Poor Dad, and a whole bunch of others giving you their best ever advice. We're going to keep the momentum going and we're going to be talking to Brian Barbuto. How are you doing, Brian? Great. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Nice to have you on the show. Brian is the CEO of InfoBridge, which is a private equity firm for commercial real estate and residential real estate investors and sponsors. He's got over 40 years in real estate development, and he's completed over 1,000 residential units and worked through over $100 million in real estate funding. Based in Orange County, California, and you can check out their company at infobridge.com. There's a link to it in the show notes page. Brian, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? As you said, I've been a developer for four years. My emphasis has been on the residential market. I pioneered the first ever equestrian community in attached single-family housing. Back in the day when the economy was transitioning from condos to PUDs, planning developments, I championed the first single-family attached homes with all the amenities of a single-family detached home and coined the acronym Attached Single-Family Homes. I've built everything in the low end and the high end of the residential market and have had the privilege and joy of building a number of industrial parks, uh, some commercial centers, and also some office administrative uh, projects. So I've got a diverse background. Uh, my latest endeavor is to work with developers and projects like those to help them get position of having adequate equity and debt placement for the funding of their projects. How come you're not still doing hands-on development? You know, after 40 years, as much as I loved it, the challenge of finding uh, new opportunities was dwarfed by the opportunity to work with developers across the country and a myriad of different kinds of projects. I just felt that it was time for my career to move in a little bit different direction, get out of the uh, driver's seat as developer and into the position of uh, advocate and assistant in getting projects funded, as I said a moment ago. And that's a big challenge today. You know, the new requirements by lending institutions to 
greater equity requirement, uh, lower loan to cost and loan to value ratios have made it uh, more and more difficult for the smaller and mid-sized development companies to come up with adequate sources for capital and equity. And I saw the opportunity to be a facilitator and enjoying this kind of new position in the industry. You mentioned that you have built industrial parks. I don't think I've interviewed anyone about developing the industrial parks. And we'll get to the current venture that you have with InfoBridge, but I would like to learn more about that. Can you tell us the story about how you were involved in developing an industrial park? Yes. I had a financial partner, actually, that was an investor in one of my residential developments that owned a piece of industrial property south of Ontario Airport came to me with the idea of developing that facility. At that time, we were not industrial developers. We did a market analysis and saw that there was a real challenge to break the $50 per square foot value. Projects were heavy in common area space and light in enclosed outdoor working space, very light to warehouse ratio. And looking at it, decided that we could use some of our residential experience in terms of space orientation put it to good work in creating a site plan that would be a little different than the traditional industrial park and created a greater ratio of office to warehouse. We went from 10 to 25%. We did that by taking what was a traditional outside parking area, turned that into an outside storage and outside fabrication area, giving more area in the warehouse for that kind of activity that was normally being used for storing materials and then created a greenbelt in which we parked residual and, and overflow parking in the greenbelt. We used a turf stone under the grass so that we had grass parking. And most industrial parks should never really reach maximum capacity in, in parking. You know, always had a, more parking than you needed. So it was a way to increase the office space and get a greater yield out of the space. And as a result, we're the first developers to break the 50 per square foot barrier South the airport back in the 80s, and that gave way to creating an industrial division. We did a number of uh, industrial parks as a result. How do you balance the risk versus reward in that particular project? And perhaps if you need to make it a more broad answer, then that's fine. But to do some things that hadn't been done before, I suspect there's dollars at risk whenever you're coming up with those site plans and architects and whoever else are involved. How do you balance that? Well, my philosophy in risk versus reward is take no risk. Look for ways to use design criteria and go through the entitlement process and get your entitlements before you're committed to a project and build out of a project. Know what you've got. Do a value analysis. Test the market before you build the product and then build the product. And so doing, you've cast, you've already cast a net, you've already got candidate, occupants, buyers, et cetera. Put those to task and uh, begin to market your product throughout the construction so that upon delivery of inventory, you've got filled spaces and or sales contracts that generate closings of inventory. I really believe that in all real estate development, you make your money on the front end when you buy anything, you're going to make money. And if you buy something and you can use your creativity to create a product that has greater market demand than your competitor and you provide a a better product than your competitor, you're going to not increase value. You're definitely going to increase demand. And if your project already pencils out and you've increased demand, you've got a 
more rapid absorption and that results in a higher return because the return comes quicker. So my kind of forte and niche has always been doing developments. The first type, as example of the equestrian community I mentioned earlier, going in and building a product like that without adequate research wouldn't make any sense. But we did determine that there was a great and vast number of homeowners that had horses and had nowhere to put their horses, couldn't afford a 16,000-square-foot lot where they could put a couple paddocks in the back and have their horses. And as a result, came up with the idea that if we gave those individuals the same home on a smaller lot and a shared interest in a common area facility that traditionally houses a pool, tennis court, and things of that nature, if we could give them a common facility, a common equestrian facility where they could have their horses basically in their backyard, within their community, directly behind the home, but in the common area that was certainly within walking distance. Now you've given people who couldn't otherwise afford to have their horses at home an opportunity to have same house, smaller lot, common area question facility, big demand, and as a result, a successful project. I certainly love the philosophy of take no risk. I'd like to dig in a little bit to that just to fully understand it, though. You said your philosophy is to take no risk, to go through the entitlement process. So I suspect that assumes that you already own the land or you're partnering with someone who owns the land. And if that's true, then my question is, what if you don't own the land and you have the idea for the development, then how do you balance that risk-reward? Well, whether you are acquiring the land or considering the joint venture of the development on a piece of land that a partner may own or some private party may own, same equation. You really want to do your pre-development work, your entitlement work, get through your permitting process. You really want to knock all of that out before you take title to a project and commit yourself to building it. Too often, builders speculate on entitlement and they endeavor to build a 40-unit single-family and up of 30. And as a result, the project doesn't pencil as well as it would have. You know, people in the flipping market buying properties, thinking that they're going to do things to increase the value of the home before they flip it, only to find out that they can't. So what I was referring to is tying up properties, having acquisitions contingent upon entitlement or contingent upon due diligence is always the way to go. And there's a tipping point. You, you really want a project really bad, you really believe in it, and the seller is not willing to give you adequate time to guarantee yourself that you can do what you think you can do. And all too often, we pull the trigger and we go forward because we're emotionally committed to a project. And I think that's a, a mistake that I've made and my peers frequently make. And it's better to pay a premium to pay for the privilege of the additional time that's necessary to either get through the entitlement or the diligence period so that you know exactly what you're building before you build it, you know exactly what the value and the demand of the product is before you commit to it. And you know, traditionally, my acquisitions are long-term escrows. I'm often paying more for the privilege of having longer time frame, uh, appreciating value, increasing market. That's okay. Land values are going up. I've got a committed purchase price at a base with some consideration being given for the privilege and the honor of going forward, extending the time frame. And I spend a little bit more money, but I mitigate the risk. And I think that's the prudent way to approach the acquisition development of any kind of a project, whether it be a 
single family flip, a large subdivision, anything in the commercial sector, it's just always better to get that out of the way before you go hard with big dollars. And when you say you spend a little bit more money, that's because you have a longer period of time that you're building in for due diligence to make sure that it pencils the way you're projecting. Correct. And that gives you the, the chance, too, to launch a pre-marketing campaign to put some dealers out there, talk to people if it's in the commercial, like in the case of industrial parks, oftentimes people who are looking to move or planning their move months and months and months in advance of actually moving gives you the opportunity to tailor a product around big anchor. One of my parks, while in the design development phase, brokers brought a key tenant to the table. And as a result, you know, we tailored one of the buildings specifically to their need and you know, had occupancy within a week of CFO, Certificate of Completion and Occupancy. And that's, again, beneficial to have those deals in the pipeline ready to close or to take occupancy as soon as you can get occupancy provided. All right. Now that you're focused on InfoBridge or the CEO of InfoBridge, when others look at InfoBridge, they might think crowdfunding platform. I don't think that our term that you like to use when describing InfoBridge. And if not, what is it and what makes it different from the other platforms that are crowdfunding platforms? Like crowdfunding, we're all taking advantage of the SEC regulations that have presented themselves as a result of the Jobs Act and the ability to solicit any number of accredited investors on the internet that would invest in your project. But unlike most crowdfunding platforms, InfoBridge is a full-service entity. We do all the due diligence and all the vetting and all the underwriting on the front end and we are involved in the project until the completion of it as defined by lenders paid off, investors paid back, sponsors have made a profit. InfoBridge is a wholly owned subsidiary of a company by the name of InvoTech, which also owns Risk Management Corp and BoulderGuard, which are instruments that are used, unlike any other crowdfunding platform, to provide capital asset management and protection. Our projects are vetted and underwritten with the potential of providing uh, CAP, which is capital asset protection, i.e. generating a warranty against failure, provides the investor with a backstop of maximum loss exposure of uh, 20% of principal. So somebody comes into an InfoBridge project, they get that confidence along with the certainty of the Risk Management Corp, which the deck also owns and manages which is a management entity that is focused on underwriting and management through the process. We've brought a number of Fortune 500 companies to the table who entered into contract with us that provide services that include on-time, on-budget completion assurance, uh, funds control, environmental assessment, ALTA policies and title insurance, and on and on. And aggregating these services gives us the ability to provide the comfort that most crowdfunding services don't provide. They're basically in the DOC that is funded and not too concerned about what happens thereafter. And I don't say that to denigrate anybody else. There's some great crowdfunding platforms out there that are doing a great job at vetting projects and doing a great job at getting sponsors funded, and I commend them for what they're doing. I just think that taking it a little bit further thinking about it more 
from a developer's point of view than a, a, say, a technology individual's point of view, we realize that the risk of failure is pretty substantial in any project and mitigating those risks with services of quality, folks like the ones I mentioned a minute ago, greatly minimize the downside. And we feel confident that every project that InfoBridge sponsors, funds, will be completed on time, on budget, will complete it to realize the profits that were projected and that investors will, in fact, generate the returns that they are looking forward to. Brian, based on your experience as someone who's been in the industry for 40 years, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? Well, I think it's uh, encapsulated uh, in what we said earlier, which is remember that your profits made when you start the process, not when you exit it. You got to build your expectations around an exit, but everything that you commit your investing to, whether it be a residential project that you're going to develop or you're investing in, you really got to look at it at the level of buy. Am I buying, generating immediate equity, or is my equity going to be realized after I develop something or after I do something? If it's the latter, it's not a good deal. If it's the former, it's a great deal. So that means every time I close escrow on an acquisition, I pay money. If I buy something the minute that I close escrow, its value the day that I close is substantially more than what I paid for it because of what I've done to the property or to the project while I was in escrow. So the best advice that I can give people is make your money in the acquisition, take your time, get your entitlements, your planning in place. So the minute you close, if you decided to sell the project the next day, you could sell it the very next day and make a profit. Is there a certain percent of equity that you'd look for to make sure that it is a good deal? Like anything that you come up with? No, because every deal acquisition is different. You may be paying a premium for a property to a seller who's willing to carry 90% of the acquisition cost. And you've got a very small investment in the deal. You buy a million dollar piece of property with a hundred grand, a seller carried financing and you turn it and sell it the very next day. It's, sell that property for a million two, we only made 200000 but you turned a $200,000 profit on a $100,000 investment. If you had to pay cash for that property, it doesn't make as much sense. So the terms are always different, and therefore the expectations and returns are always different, mm. but the principle is always the same. Make your profit before you close. Just realize it when you close. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Sure. By the way. All right. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. Do you have questions about how to get started and make money in real estate as an investor? Then join the live six-week coaching and education group called Real Estate Investing Bootcamp. You can go to investorrealtyvt.com forward slash RAI bootcamp. That's investor, I-N-V-E-S-T-O-R, realty, R-E-A-L-T-Y, V-T, dot com forward slash rei bootcamp for more information and to enroll today what's the best ever book you've read don't read i'm dyslexic <laughs> don't do you listen to them everything i know i i've learned i'm a high school dropout everything i know i've learned from experience and one thing i've learned is it's better to listen than to talk you get a lot more knowledge from doing and listening than you do from reading and or from talking about it you got to go out and do it. Just skin your knees. It's okay. That's how you learn. What was the tipping point 
when you look back in your career where it was a very pivotal event that after that big things happened for you in a good way? Well, I was fortunate. I was very successful in my 20s. I started my first development company at 21 or 22, but my first project that year sold most of my assets in my company in my early 30s, and it made a lot of money. I think the first cataclysmic event in my life that really taught me the greatest lesson was that my success is not a definition of what I've done and how much money I've made, but rather the effect of the people that I've worked with. And I had to learn that the hard way. I was uh, probably a little too aggressive, a little too brutal in my 20s. I was uh, fortunate to take a very, very big loss early in my 30s after having uh, thought that I'd retired for life, only to have to go back into development again. And it was a great life lesson for me to realize that it's the effect that you have on people that really makes the difference. And it's not the money in the bank that defines us. It's how we affect one another that defines us. And I would trade money for relationship any day. I would rather have relationship than money. I would rather have a thousand people respect me and trust me than have no one who trust me and have money in the bank. What's the best ever deal you've done? Um, that's tough because I've done a lot of deals that were pretty stellar in terms of the returns that they generated. I think the, the best ever deal answer is more the kind of deal, which is it's always been for me about the willingness to be first and the willingness to step up and take the risk and the negativity that goes along with risking and failing. I had a project that endeavored to sell some dirt on the dirt. I actually bought a piece of land endeavoring to sell most of the dirt on the land. It was a great big mountain of sand. It took a lot of bad press. A lot of people made fun of the idea, but it was a great idea. And it was a great concept. Didn't get it finished, but I learned a whole lot in the process. I think too often we shrink back because we're afraid of what people will think of us if we fail. And I think, as I said earlier, failing is a great life lesson. You learn the most about anything from doing it and falling down. What's the best ever way you'd like to give back? One-on-one. -on -one. People who've got a hunger and a desire to grow and to achieve and need mentorship, uh, financial support, that's the best way. If somebody's willing to learn, they don't want just a handout and a little bit of cash, but they're, they need some capital and they want some mentoring, that's the best way to, because everybody you mentor and you help financially ends up becoming a mentor and helping somebody else. And it just pyramids and it's, it, it is my preference and it's what I've done most of my life is mentored and given to those that really wanted to put it to the best use. What's the biggest mistake you've made in real estate? Assuming that people had the character that they said they had. Too often we want to believe the best in people and we don't allow ourselves enough time to get to know them and as a result they fail us. Too often expectations and anticipations are not matched by the deeper people that we are and the superficial things on the top often match, but that deeper lower level of who we really are doesn't align itself and those become uncomfortable relationships to get out of. You mentioned that you took a very big loss in your early 30s. Tactically speaking, if you came across a similar situation, what would you do differently now? Listen to the attorneys. 
but not let him make the decision for me. How would you then inform your decision if you were listening to attorneys but not letting them make the decision for you? Which one was the right decision? And what are we talking about? Is it just high level? High level uh, personal wealth management. I think in my 30s, I was more comfortable in other people's analysis and decisions than I should have been. I should have been as anxious to protect my investments and my assets as I was to earn them. It's never been about having it for me. It's been about doing it. I've always been more concerned with doing it than keeping it. And I think that was reflected in my youth and naivete in my 30s. What's the best place the best ever listeners can learn more about you or your company? Infobridge.com, I-N-F-O-B-R-I-J.com. And I'm pretty accessible, easy guy to reach. You know, I've got a an email address that can be found there, and people can reach out to me, email me, or contact me. I, I'm not adverse to talk to people who just want to get a little uh, mentoring. Well, Brian, this was a conversation that was full with just insightful things from a real estate investing standpoint, especially for best ever listeners who are interested in development, where you talk through the industrial park that you were involved in with the $50 square foot value that you ended up breaking the barrier for through some unique angles that weren't previously seen all the way to your approach to taking no risk in your words or or limiting the risk by having a longer process for due diligence. You might pay more during due diligence process, but at least you'll be more convinced or more assured that the numbers that you're penciling in will actually pencil versus what you think you're going to do and then not having enough time to make sure it can happen. And then lastly, the approach that you said where it's the effect that you have on people that defines us, not the money in our bank account and how you would trade money for relationships any day. I think that speaks volumes as well. So thank you so much for sharing the stories and your thought process. Really grateful we were able to have a conversation. I hope you have a best ever day and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Joe. It's been a pleasure. Do you have questions about how to get started and make money in real estate as an investor? Then join the live six-week coaching and education group called Real Estate Investing Bootcamp. You can go to investorrealtyvt.com forward slash RAI bootcamp. That's investor, I-N-V-E-S-T-O-R, realty, R-E-A-L-T-Y, vt.com forward slash RAI. REI Bootcamp for more information and to enroll today.